I start this series by speaking to Richard Rogers, an expert in international human rights and criminal law, having worked on several UN tribunals in Yugoslavia, Kosovo and Cambodia, as well as having advised on truth commissions, most recently in the Seychelles. Richard draws on his varied experiences to consider big themes such as truth, justice, reconciliation and amnesty, and discusses whether he thinks a British Truth Commission might just be possible. I began by asking him to explain the difference between an international criminal court and a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. An international court, they, they tend to be set up to deal with um, a post-conflict situation and to indict and prosecute people for war crimes, crimes against humanity or genocide. And so they're basically criminal courts, but to deal with really big, violent events, generally wars, but they could also um, be set up to deal with post-election violence. A truth commission, on the other hand, is more of a, an inquiry. So you don't necessarily indict or prosecute. In fact, you don't indict or prosecute. You, you invite witnesses to come and tell their story and they may include victims but they may also include perpetrators so the idea is to uh, expose the truth about what happened again it might be a traumatic event it might be the type of event that could also be addressed through an international crimes tribunal but it has a different emphasis. It looks really at reconciliation, um, forgiveness, and turning the page. That, that's more the emphasis, although there, there are a whole variety of different types of truth commissions. Two questions coming straight up. I remember coming back from South Africa. I'd been seeped in the truth commission while living in South Africa. It was on radio, television. You couldn't avoid it. The whole country was soaking up this new history that had been denied under apartheid. Um, I came back and the only headline I saw in Britain was too much reconciliation, not enough justice. Can you explain the difference between those two concepts? What that headline was talking about was the amnesty provision. So it was decided, rightly or wrongly, that the best way for South Africa to move forward after apartheid was to have a truth commission that offered amnesty, complete amnesty, for those who came forward and told the truth about their role in apartheid and the violence that was associated with it. Um, and an amnesty means that you won't be prosecuted. So, um, in effect, many of the worst perpetrators who committed terrible crimes uh, got away with it in a, in a sense or at least were not convicted and, and imprisoned because they were granted an amnesty for telling the truth at the truth commission now a lot of people that was controversial at the time and it still is now and a lot of people think that they shouldn't have been because the evidence was strong because there could have been criminal trials and because the crimes were so serious, they should have been convicted and imprisoned. But the decision was taken that uh, that wasn't the best way forward. And the best way forward was to sit down and talk about what happened. Um, and for those who are willing to come forward and tell the truth and help create a historical record, 
then they would be amnestied. There were five conditions of amnesty, though. It wasn't just a simple thing. You had to have full disclosure. The means had to justify the ends, certain conditions. Do you think, without the carrot of amnesty, you could have had... What motivation would people have had to have told the truth? Well, well, that's the question. I mean, I can't speak for those people, but, but the theory is that if you're going to get people to come forward and tell the truth about horrific events and they're rolling them, then you need to offer them a carrot. And that carrot is the amnesty. So this is, this is one of the, probably the main reason it's offered, because you get out of them information that you wouldn't get otherwise. I think, I think there are other reasons as well. Some people take the view that when they're those big historical events that have been going on for decades and there's lots of people who are really cogs in the wheel they didn't create the system themselves but they were just working within it then it can be more appropriate to have a truth commission type situation rather than convicting and banging people up but there's different views on that in fact do you think the threat of prosecution prevents reconciliation? I think it depends. I mean, you know, there is a theory that there is no peace without justice. I don't know whether that's supported by the evidence or not. Uh, What I can say is that in some situations, such as Bosnia, where there has been an awful lot of trials, both at the international and national level, there still isn't peace in, in the real sense of the word. In fact, Bosnia is really just a frozen conflict in the sense that the the communities that were at war with each other, the Serbs, the Croats, and the and, and the, the Muslims, they still seem to hate each other. So it's just frozen in 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 time, um, and it's a it's an awful situation there because there's there's so much corruption, there's so much ethnic hatred young people just leave because they've had enough of it and the whole country seems to be in this in this frozen state where nothing positive happens and there's no progression so even though there was lots of justice in the sense of prosecutions and and imprisonments there certainly isn't peace in the in the true sense of the word now i think it really depends on the situation can you give any examples of one where it has moved where you feel you've witnessed either a truth commission or an international court allowing a country to kind of move beyond conflict? Well, it's really hard to measure, isn't it? If you look at the situation in Rwanda, how bad it was, um, where about 900,000 Tutsis were massacred in about 90 days. So it's about 10,000 people a day, most of them chopped up by machetes. It's, it's now in a situation of, of peace. Now, that may or may not be partly or wholly because that there were trials afterwards. And in Rwanda, there were international trials at the ICTR, the UN-sponsored tribunal. But there were also plenty of national trials, the Kachacha courts locally. Now, can you explain to people the Kachacha? Do you mind? Yeah, well, that well, that that that's a a, a sort of a, a community-based 
system of of adjudication where um, they would fill a, a small stadium or, 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 or an area with people from the community and they would be asked to and they would bring out the 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 suspects and then the people in the community would be asked to provide information evidence on 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 their guilt or not and it's kind of a, a way of the community to to play a role in the justice system um, some lawyers will will sort of hate that system because they think it doesn't uh, respect defense rights others will think that it's it's good because it integrates community-based justice and more of the traditional systems there's arguments either way um, but you know R- R- Rwanda is definitely at peace but I think that's mainly because the the Tutsi regime that eventually took over that came in from Uganda and, and pushed out the genocidaire Hutu um, militias and, and, and government um, is incredibly strong and has a very strong leader, Paul Kagame, who, who, again, is is not an angel by any stretch of the imagination. He's accused of all sorts of human rights abuses, but he runs Rwanda efficiently and with an iron fist. So um, there's certainly peace there. I'm sure there's a lot of people that aren't very happy, but they're a lot more happy than they were in, in, in 1995, just after the, the, the genocide. Um, two good examples. I'm just thinking, you've just said there's a saying that you can't have peace without justice. Can you have reconciliation without truth? Well, I, I think on the road to reconciliation, it's important for people to feel like they have the full story, the truth, if you want to call it that. Um, but just to understand what happened to the people that they love. Uh, so the what and, if possible, the why, which is not... The why is not really part of the criminal justice system, um, but it is a bit more part of the Truth Commission system. So that is a bit more of an inquiry into what happened, but also why it happened, which is perhaps another advantage of, of the Truth Commissions over the criminal justice. Just on that note... I may have got it wrong when I, I made that film in Cambodia well, before the International Court arrived. I sensed a country that couldn't understand how it had killed their own. They had no understanding, really, of how they could have done that to themselves and about the creation of Pol Pot. And it was coming out in all sorts of odd ways, like a human being, when they don't like themselves, might abuse themselves. I felt I was looking at a country that was kind of self-hating. Then when the International Court came, it is funded by America predominantly, isn't it? Predominantly by Japan. It has many many contributors, but Japan was, I think, the major one. The, the US certainly pushed for it. I was going to ask you, who decides on the parameters of the time scale of justice? So I felt the International Court created a time scale that ignored the who and why Pol Pot was created, which put the blame more on the West. And, and maybe we didn't, and maybe the country didn't get that context because of the parameters of the court. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, the, the, the court was pushed by a handful of countries, including the US. 
and it was negotiated by the UN and the Cambodian government at the time when the Cambodian government was relatively weak, certainly far, far weaker than it is today. Uh, and they were sort of pushed into having the courts. Um, of course, you have to remember that the Cambodian regime now and at the time that this was negotiated were former Camarouge themselves. Um, so they were suspicious of what the UN and, and its powerful countries wanted to achieve. Uh, and in the negotiation process, they insisted on having a majority of Cambodian judges and a Cambodian prosecutor. Uh, and that was obviously to ensure that the process didn't eventually go after them. Now, at the same time, the Americans were also keen for the temporal jurisdiction to start at the time when the Camarouge took power in Phnom Penh and exclude all the bombing that the Americans did during the Vietnam War on Cambodian soil. And as you were sort of intimating, uh, the, the Camarouge really were created because of the American bombing in Cambodia, which encouraged people to, to, to take up arms against the Sihanouk regime at the time that was supporting the Americans, even though the Americans were bombing um, areas of Cambodia uh, because they were worried about the, 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 the Viet Cong supply lines, but they were, they were bombing all the way over to Sien Rip, far in, in, in the west. That created um, this guerrilla force that turned into the Camarouge that took power and committed a terrible genocide. So, yeah, if, we're going, if, if there was a truth commission in Cambodia, hopefully it would have looked back to see the, the roots of the Camarouge, which included illegal American bombing. So was there justice in Cambodia then? Well, I think it depends who you ask, but... Uh, the some of the main leaders of the Camarouge were tried. The process didn't start for about 30 years after the end of the Camarouge regime. So it was slow to get going. And once it got going, it was slow to proceed. So sadly, a couple of there, there was five accused to begin with and then another four. And I think of the first five one of them was found to be insane and a couple of them died. So if I remember, there was only really two convictions, um, possibly a, a, a third conviction. And then of all the of all the, the second uh, category of cases, of which I defended one of them, they, all those cases were, were, were thrown out eventually. The price, the cost of an international court, is that the best use of money to ensure peace in a country? If that money was invested either in a truth commission is one millionth of the cost of an international court, or infrastructure rebuilding so people just aren't so poor, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is kind of met a bit more. Would that not be? Would that not potentially lead to peace in a way that the court can't guarantee? Or what is the point of the? of the court in that way yeah i mean whether it's good value or not is incredibly hard to measure i i think one thing to bear in mind is that if if that hundred million odd 
dollars that the Camerous Tribunal cost had not been spent on the Camerous Tribunal, it may not have been spent in Cambodia at all. So it's not as if there was this easy choice. Okay, do you want 120 million for a court that convicts three people? Or do you want 120 million to pass out to the population? That wasn't a choice. Should it have been of choice? Maybe. Um, but that's not how international politics or international justice works. The Western states that sponsor these big expensive courts will spend the money on particular projects. And oftentimes those projects are very expensive and, and arguably not very um, cost efficient. So, you know, it, it's really hard to justify spending that much on a system that convicts so few people, um, all of which were fairly easy prosecutions in one sense um, and could have been tried locally. But, but, but that money, so what would have happened to it? It would have been spent on bombing Afghanistan. I mean, you know, there's the West wastes vast amounts of money on military operations. Um, it wastes far less on accountability mechanisms. So yes, they're expensive. Yes, they're, they're, you can't really say that they are good value. Um, but I think they have an important role to play in, in setting international standards. And it's hard to put a value on that because if, if the fact of there being international courts in Yugoslavia, in Rwanda, in Cambodia, in Timor, in Sierra Leone, if those courts, which together probably cost half a billion, if they had prevented a single armed conflict, there would be good value for money. Well, yeah, that's a good argument. Because <laughs> war is in, armed conflict is incredibly expensive. If you think of the cost of the war in Ukraine now, so even though it's a big cost, somebody's benefiting from it. The five permanent members of the Security Council, the, the, those who have a veto in the international system, um, are enormous arms dealers, all of them. America, UK, France, Russia, China. They make a huge amount. When you mentioned the West just then, and I just wanted to ask you, you I'm sure you'll have come across in all these countries that you've been working, that it's the West trying the rest. And when is... It, it loses legitimacy because it doesn't look back at itself and its own history. Do you think there could ever be a truth commission in Britain? Uh, for, for what? To deal with what events? Well, let's start at slavery and work our way on. Well, I, th I think truth commissions need to deal with a particular period of history. I, 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 think, I don't think you could have a truth commission to deal with 200 years of history, for example. I just think there's too much information. The other thing, if it was to deal with slavery, you have to ask yourself, who would be telling the truth at that point? Because everybody's dead. Um, this happened a long time ago. So a truth commission kind of requires, I think, that, that, that there's people who can actually testify firsthand to the events to provide information that wasn't there before and to show that they are remorseful about what happened. If it's 
just a matter of looking back in history and trying to gather evidence, then maybe something like a commission is more appropriate. What's the difference? I think a commission is more of a sort of academic process that will still gather evidence, but won't necessarily gather evidence from live witnesses. That's interesting just because obviously since Black Lives Matter, that has become a big issue. Um, I went to a philosophy festival in Hay. Everybody was discussing reparations. There were no victims discussing reparations. I thought that was quite interesting. There were beneficiaries all discussing what they, they felt could be reparations. What, what examples of reparations have you seen from your work in different places? People think it's only money and they get nervous of that like a Robin Hood tax in a way sort of thing but but what have you seen as kind of examples of reparations? Well none of them have been particularly satisfactory but that doesn't mean that good ones don't exist. Um, in, in Rwanda there were more, they have things like community-based uh, reparations so they would have a monument for example some fairly gruesome ones, but they sort of obviously made the point of how awful genocides are, so people don't forget. Um, there are other types of reparations which... Uh, and in, in Cambodia there were similar ones, where they had these community-based ones. It might even just be a sign of, you know, at this site, this terrible event happened. Um, I think it's better if you can do something for the effective affected communities and I don't think as you say I don't think the right thing is to hand out lots of money to individual victims I think it's much better to have community-based um, reparations that might be building a school or, 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 or a church or a road or or, or uh, a clean water facility or something that's useful to the whole community to improve their lives a little bit um, bearing in mind that that their lives were undermined and probably still are from the conflict. Um, it, but it's very, I mean, in, in the UK, if there were reparations, they would certainly be, you know, they can include things like recognition by those who committed the crimes. That's a little bit hard when you, if you go back a couple of hundred years, um, who's going to do the, the apologising? Um, um, and it's also difficult. It's a very complicated question. If 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 you're looking back in time, how do you repair damage, and who's to repair damage of of events two or three hundred years ago? Obviously, those the damage should have been repaired closer to the time. But if it hasn't, what then do you do? How, who are the victims? Who are the perpetrators? Um, is it the taxpayer? that should pay for these things if the government says well, they're going to pay. It was a taxpayer who only stopped paying tax towards bailing out the um, slave owners in 2015. So for most of my life, uh, my family has been paying tax to the slave owners as compensation, not the slaves. Yeah, and that's obviously something that, that's, that's objectionable. Um, there's no reason why, uh, quite the opposite. If, 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 if we're going to be taxed, then our money should be going to the victims, not, 
not not the perpetrators. In some ways I see it happening in Britain anyway. There's a lot of truth coming out, another side of the story. Like you said, the whole truth, versions of the truth. If it's not done on an institutional level, it's being done on the grassroots to redress the untold story. But I just wonder what effect you've seen in other countries and what does it feel like in a country that has faced its truth? And does it feel different to countries that deny their truth? But Britain, perhaps you could say, hasn't dealt with its past. And I don't know, as somebody that's lived in different countries, if you feel it differently. In different- well, it's just so difficult to measure because the, the situations in which I worked were so different. They were they were much more raw um, in the sense that the conflict and the atrocities had been much more recent. And the, the, the furthest had been in Cambodia, where it was 30 years before. Uh, in Rwanda, it was within 10 years. Yugoslavia, within 10 years. So it, it's, very, it's very hard to compare. Uh, in fact, it's even very hard within those countries to know what effect facing the truth had um, on the populations. I don't think it was a Yugoslavia doesn't provide us with a great deal of hope because if you go and ask the average Serb, they will feel like they're a victim of the post conflict reconciliation processes. They feel like they were vilified wrongly um, because they're still subject to propaganda, they're still subject to nationalist tendencies. And the Bosnian Muslims will feel like they didn't get enough. Um, and go to Rwanda. I think that the you know the Tutsis are now, I imagine, are feeling relatively secure and relatively happy with modern Rwanda because the the regime is is a Tutsi regime. The Hutus probably feel very hard done by, and of course those who were part of the genocide then yeah, yeah, they, 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 they don't really have anything to complain about uh, but of course there were many Hutus that were not part of the genocide and so they may not be very happy so these situations are so complicated and complex but I think that recently a lot of issues have come out in the UK there, obviously there's a there's there's a lot of truth that should come out there's a lot of recognition that i think is important in terms of the uk's role in 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 slavery and in in the colonial period but relatively the uk has pretty good race relations if you compare it to the us to france to germany to many countries it's it's pretty good in the uk Every country is different because of its political, historical, cultural, religious realities, and it's just very hard to compare them. Um, But clearly, it is the right thing to do and probably beneficial to have some kind of reckoning of, of, of the past and a recognition of the crimes that were committed in the name of the UK uh, during colonial times. It's a shame that the powers that be seem to be quite nervous of it. And I just wondered if you felt fear of prosecution means that they feel unable to apologise. Well, again, it depends what events you're talking about, but I don't think... Let's say Amritsar massacre. 
the Queen went there, Cameron went there. They went as close as they could to an apology, but they couldn't quite do it. It's an admission of guilt, I suppose. Well, I, I, there's, there's only the people that committed the crime can be prosecuted, not, not the current government. But and that, that was a horrendous massacre by, I can't remember his name, is it? Dyer. Dyer, well, yeah. D- Dyer, the, yeah. The, the incredible figure that he got a peerage and he got um, a huge, he, he got given lots of money and prestige for what he did. Right. Yeah, well, that, that's obviously the, the, you know, one of the worst examples of, if you can imagine in terms of, there, there, was, there was clearly um, deep racism at, the, at that time, a feeling that those victims weren't worthy of, of justice and accountability and that's a really sorry uh, state of affairs um, now it, 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 if he was still alive then he should be prosecuted that's clear the consequences are still being played out today are they not yeah I, I, I it's very hard to comment because I don't know what money he was given by who and when and what the circumstances were Obviously, if he was given, he should have been given a prison sentence rather than money after massacring people. If he was given money, yes, his children are benefiting, but it's it gets pretty complicated if we're then going to start holding children accountable for the actions of their parents that they had nothing to do with. We obviously can't hold them accountable. Can we take money off them? I... I, I it's very difficult. And maybe, like we've been talking, maybe the truth of the stories, having multiple truths, other versions of the truth come out, will lead to reconciliation. I wonder, when these new truths come out, some people feel duped. Who You know, the curriculum at the moment is just not allowing another truth to come out. Even now, I'm 52... I've been, I've uncovered and found my birth father because I was adopted, my Indian birth father. I've then spent 30 years uncovering the history of my, of why my birth father's family left India, came and ended up in Canada. And as I've uncovered that truth, it's been really shocking. And each time I, I learn something new, I, I kind of had to reconstitute myself, ingest it, digest it and reconstitute. And and that denial and then realising this other truth that I've had to spend 30 years uncovering myself because I wasn't given, leaves me quite cross. And I think that could happen on a much larger scale with the population when they are denied the truth of their story. And there's a lot of, there's a sort of, I don't know if you sensed it whilst living in Britain, but there's a big push to uncover another truth. Do you think there's only one truth or do you think you can have multiple truths? That's a difficult question. Um, I mean, as a, as a, I think there's definitely more than one version of the truth that people believe to be true. Um, whether there's more than one objective truth, it's difficult to say. I mean, certainly working in criminal justice... Uh, people are subject to different information, different culture, different ideas, and their 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 understanding of events can be radically different from one another. Um, so they st- can strongly believe in 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 a in a version that someone on the other side 
completely disagrees with and vice versa. So if you're dealing with a very simple issue, like is the television on or is the television off, then there's only one truth. If you're dealing with the rights and wrongs of an armed conflict and how it and how the different warring factions came to that situation and what their grievances were and um, and the reasons behind them, then there can be different versions of the truth because it's so complicated. There's so many different factors. There's there's there is a certain level of subjectivity to it. Um, so in those complicated situations, there's definitely two versions of what people believe to be true. I, I was amazed when I saw your court in Rwanda when I came to visit you. And there were three judges from very different cultures. And presumably it's, you, there must be incredible debates between cultures of what is international law. I mean, how you reconcile all these different viewpoints into one verdict or one law. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think actually what's interesting is that there are judges that are very confident and lead, and there are other judges that just follow. I I think I, I, I worked for international judges for many years. There's some really great ones, really impressive, and there's a lot of really awful, rather pathetic ones. And that's just the reality of the way that they are nominated by their states to sit as international judges. There's no examination. Uh, there's no test to get the job as a judge. Uh, all you need is, is, is a good connection with your foreign ministry and you get yourself a nice fat salary as an international judge. Some of them are appalling and some of them are great. Uh, and so there's a whole range. And uh, the ones that are great really carry the chamber. And the ones that are appalling, at best, they do very little work. Uh, at worst, they try to throw a spanner in the works. Um, but I think what's interesting, getting back to your point, is that I I don't think the differences come from the culture. I think the differences come from the character. And I think there's a lot of there's a fairly general sense of what's fair in human culture across the globe. And if you're a fair-minded person, you generally have the same view wherever you're from. If you're not fair, if you don't care about justice, or if you're just doing the bidding of your government, corrupt with a small c, then you'll just convict people because either you're mean-spirited or you think there should be a conviction or because your government have said you should. But otherwise, I think whether you're Chinese or Russian or American or British or Nigerian or or Brazilian, I think generally if you're a right-minded person that wants to do the right thing, then you'll have a pretty similar view at the end of a trial. That's interesting because one of the questions I was going to ask you is do you think... Have you come across different concepts of justice in different countries? No, I, I, I think, I mean, there was one judge in particular who was a former diplomat who would just convict anyone. And everybody knew that, that, that you know, this guy's just going to convict no matter what the evidence. And I don't think that was because he had a different sense of justice. I think that's because he had no sense of justice. He just, for him, if you were before the court, you must be guilty. He wasn't a real judge. He was a diplomat with a law degree. Um, and 
there's other judges that understand because they are have a, a a criminal law background that lots of people that end up before a criminal justice system are not guilty and need to be acquitted and that's what the process is meant to be about finding whether or not they're guilty because otherwise what's the point if everybody is just going to be convicted then why go through the process the sense of justice depends a lot on their background and their character more than what country or they're from or what religion they follow we're quite polarized at the moment aren't we really in the world it seems there's a lot of duality and good guys and bad guys and George Bush you're either with us or you're against us but you're you're saying I mean it sounds quite hopeful what you're saying that that, that character wise across the world we have a sense of fairness what do you feel with environmental law at the moment when the global south is saying we're not having any justice we didn't cause this but we're the biggest sufferers of climate change I think that many people in the northern hemisphere or in developed countries recognize that to be true and recognize the unfairness of the situation that those who are suffering the most and who will suffer the most from climate change have caused the least the least of the warming i th- i think it's many people recognize that now that 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 shows that that humans have this general sense of fairness now what's done about that is a different question because humans have a general sense of fairness but humans are also relatively selfish so you've got to combine lots of different human characteristics and before you get you know a response and if it was only about fairness then we'd throw loads of money down south um to those to 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 mitigate against climate change if it was only about selfishness we wouldn't give any but it's a combination of all these things uh, and it's a very complicated process uh, so there will be money there's meant to be 100 million 100 100 billion per year <laughs> there's about 100 million but there should be 100 billion per year that is oh there is only 100 million no no i don't know i'm i'm i hope I'm, it's 100 I'm, billion I'm, because it's a big problem yeah, isn't it yeah no no it's a hundred it's 100 billion that's meant to go for climate mitigation which is basically helping the worst hit areas to adapt to the climate change that's coming and and is here so there is a recognition that that needs to happen and and the developed countries became rich um and the way they became rich required uh, emissions of carbon into the atmosphere and that's caused the global warming are there dangers in telling the truth yeah there are opening a can of worms for sure depending on the state of society i think it can make things worse before it gets better i think it can open wounds that people have managed to heal through time i i i think that needs to be factored in i don't think it's always the right thing to to open a new part of events in history that have that have were a long time ago and have to some extent been dealt with i don't think it's an easy equation it's not black and white when we're looking at um international courts and truth commissions what's more important the verdict or the process oh i think when it comes to truth commissions it's definitely the process i i was asked to help set up a truth commission for the Seychelles 
most people think that it's just a paradise island where nothing bad ever happens, um, apart from a coconut might fall on your foot. But in fact, there had been a, a rather nasty coup in 1977 and the regime had expropriated property, had several people disappeared, there were quite a few murders, some tortures, and that regime was in power for a, a long time, uh, I think until 1994. It's only a, it wasn't, the events weren't that bad, but it's only a small population. It's only 94,000 people live there. So it really had affected almost everybody on the island one way or the other. And eventually there was a change in government. So they were able to set up a truth commission, which I helped set up for them. The process has been incredibly important because they've never really dealt with this form of accountability before. And I think just to see some of the powerful people having to come forward and talk about what happened was 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 a real watershed moment and has allowed people, particularly the young people, to understand a little bit more about their parents' trauma and, and to sort of find a way to, to turn the page and to move forward from that part of history. I think it's been really important for the Seychelles. And that's a spoil, uh, point of it, isn't it? The, the denial part means that history might repeat itself. I think certainly one of the advantages of a truth commission is that it allows people to understand better what happened and therefore learn the lessons from the past. That's certainly one of the advantages. And I think most of the truth commissions have been successful, at least in that regard. Thanks to all our guests for sharing their personal stories, their experiences and their expertise. If you've enjoyed the programme, please follow, subscribe and share. And if you have future suggestions for interviewees, do email me at info at britishtruthcommission.com. Importantly, if you support the call for an official British Truth and Reconciliation Commission to be established, please sign and share the petition. The link is listed below. Thanks.